I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. hearing something extraordinary. It may not sound extraordinary, but it is truly remarkable. What you are hearing are the sounds from our very first trip to the gap between Saturn and its rings. And this happened just a few weeks ago. On April 26, 2017, scientists sent the Cassini spacecraft diving in between the planet Saturn and its rings. This is the closest we have ever been to the second largest planet in the solar system. Now, this is a really risky thing to do. There are always little particles from the rings, little bits of dust or even little bits of rock that are falling down onto the planet Saturn. So when Cassini flew through this gap, if we had encountered a lot of dust, it could have done a huge amount of damage to the spacecraft. Cassini was traveling at more than 75,000 miles an hour. So the mission team actually reoriented the spacecraft It has a huge dish on the front, a radio dish that we get the signals back from Cassini. It's 13 feet wide, and it was oriented straight down, almost like a battering ram for the ring crossing. This may sound like a really crazy thing to do with your spacecraft, but that's kind of the point. Cassini really has nothing left to lose. It's actually on a suicide mission right now. And the reason is that it's at the end of an incredibly successful 20-year mission. So in that time, Cassini has revealed some amazing things about our solar system, studying the giant planet Jupiter, as well as its main target, the whole system of Saturn, its rings and its moons. But in September of 2017, a lot of people are calling it the Viking funeral. Cassini will dive into the clouds of Saturn and burn up, gone forever. And seeing as this spacecraft is bound for death at this point, now we get to be a little bit punchy. We get to do riskier things than we might've done otherwise. So this time on Orbital Path, we look at the Cassini mission and see what happens when scientists can throw caution to the wind and take risks that they could only dream of. But first, the amazing thing to think about is the only reason Cassini is in this situation to have this spectacular final death is that it's been such a success. It is an incredibly well-built spacecraft. I mean, think about that right now. There's a spacecraft out around Saturn returning amazing data, gorgeous images, and it left our planet in 1997. I didn't have a cell phone in 1997. I remember having email just as these long text messages. When I think about how much my life has changed in those 20 years, it's kind of unrecognizable day to day, not connected to the internet, none of that. So 1997 was such a long time ago that even the design of the spacecraft, the science goals, really had to be incredibly well planned out. You have to edit this out, but it was built like a brick shit house. (laughs) (laughs) This is Julie Webster. She is Cassini's chief engineer, and she's been on the project since the early 1990s. The actual spacecraft is pretty simple. We have a a 256 kilobyte computer, and that's plenty. Uh, It's really strong. It's not hard to fly spacecraft. Um, They don't take a lot of computing power. To give you some context, one of Apple's first personal computers, the Macintosh SE, was also a 256-kilobyte memory computer. But that came out in 1987. That's 10 years before the launch of Cassini. 
And the reason is that when you fly something in space, you need to use very proven technology that you're incredibly sure of. The spacecraft has to take care of itself if something goes wrong. You know, you can't just turn your computer off and turn it back on and, and have everything come back up. So when engineers were designing Cassini at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they had to use technology they knew they could count on. And that means Cassini runs largely on technology from the mid-1980s. You know, one of the cool things about the, uh, some of the uh, engineering on Cassini, as we mentioned, you know, this was, you know, launched almost 20 years ago, and of course it was designed well before that. It had one of the, the first solid-state recorders that was on a spacecraft, is that correct? <laughs> yes. I worked on Magellan, and Magellan and Galileo, we had stainless steel reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape recorders. In space, Literally. wow. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it if you've <laughs> yes. been out here. You've seen it in the Galileo tape recorder. And, and you know, even though they were built beautifully, um, you, you'd take a stainless steel tape recorder, just like a cassette tape recorder, which probably your people, your, your young people don't even know about cassettes. And you run it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It starts to get sticky and it starts to not work so well. Um, so we were the first, one of the first solid state recorders, and we have really simple, very simple uh, dynamic random access memory. It's, it's, it was sophisticated at the time, but, you know, that's been far surpassed now. There's a lot of changes that have happened over the last 20 years. Not so much on the spacecraft and, and really not so much on the flight software. It's been, the real change has been in the ground software. It's been in the things that we use to track the spacecraft. I mean, we've gone from uh, sun workstations, which I still use, you know, to today I can track alarms on my, on my iPhone. T-minus 15 seconds. Cassini launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida on October 15, 1997. It took three launch attempts, which isn't unusual, but we had to get everything just right. Cassini is one of the largest spacecraft NASA has ever launched. It weighed more than six tons. And liftoff of the Cassini spacecraft on a billion-mile trek to Saturn. And then to watch as the rocket lifts off the launch pad, it went into a cloud, and this cloud brightened. You could feel people around you holding their breath. You know, did the, did the rocket blow up? What's going to happen? And then very slowly, Cassini came out through that cloud on its way to Saturn. This is Linda Spilker. And I'm the Cassini project scientist. And I've actually worked on Cassini since uh, the very beginning in the early days. I've been on Cassini 30 years. After launch, Cassini began a circuitous route through the solar system. Finally, on July 1st, 2004, nearly seven years after Linda Spilker watched Cassini lift off, the spacecraft entered Saturn's orbit. And in fact, I remember that for Saturn orbit insertion, we finished the burn right at closest approach, then turned our cameras down and looked at the rings, and we saw incredible detail, things that we had never seen before, patches around these density waves that looked like straw or carpet fuzzies where the particles clumped together and created very unusual structure, waves and ripples along some of the edges of the gaps. And I remember coming back, you know, I couldn't stay away. I went to home to go to sleep and I came back and I said, I want to be there. I want to watch those pictures come back. The Cassini mission was designed to explore Saturn, but not just the planet itself. Saturn is a fascinating system. There are rings and incredibly, there are 62 moons. And some of the moons of Saturn are really significant worlds unto themselves. The biggest moon, called Titan, is actually about 80% the size of the planet Mars. 
And we knew that Titan had a very thick atmosphere, the only moon in our solar system to have one. Now that's really intriguing. In the 1980s, the Voyager spacecraft specifically flew very close to Titan. We wanted to see if we could glimpse the surface down through the clouds. Some people thought there might be rain or even oceans underneath. Unfortunately for us, the clouds were so thick we never could see through them. So in order to finally find out what was below the clouds of Titan, the Cassini mission had a probe, kind of a sidecar that went along with the main mission called the Huygens probe. And the plan was to actually parachute through the clouds of Titan and land on the surface. And this really happened. In January 2005, we actually landed a probe sampling the atmosphere all the way down on this giant moon of Saturn. And that still has the record for the farthest landing ever away from the Earth. It parachuted down to the surface, measuring the composition, pressure, and temperature of the atmosphere, also taking pictures on its way down. And we found that Titan looked hauntingly familiar, like the Earth. We could see river channels, we saw sand dunes, we saw all of these interesting things over the course of the Cassini mission. And that's when we realized that methane plays the role on Titan, that water plays on the Earth. You can have methane clouds, methane rain, methane fills the lakes and seas at the North Pole, carves river channels. And what's crazy is that the Huygens probe survived on Titan's surface for only 72 minutes. We expected that. The surface is, you know, 300 degrees below zero. We realized we wouldn't have long to make the measurements we really wanted to. The incredible thing is how much we learned in that short of a time. As we were descending through the atmosphere of Titan, sampling the gases, we noticed that some of the gases might have been a little bit out of balance. And this is interesting because this is the way we find life remotely. When you, when you can't send an astronaut with a microscope to look for little microbes, you look for chemistry that's a bit out of balance. And intriguingly, at the very surface of Titan, something seemed to be taking certain gases out of the atmosphere. Is it possible that we detected microbes actually breathing? We don't know yet. It's one of the reasons we really have to go back. But Titan is one of the most intriguing places to visit in the solar system and one of the most likely environments for life to be there today. But it was one of Saturn's other moons that changed the Cassini mission's focus dramatically. And of course, the biggest surprise was the tiny moon Enceladus. Enceladus is a tiny, frozen little moon that orbits inside one of Saturn's outer rings. It actually has an incredibly reflective icy surface. It reflects 90% of the light that hits it. That's as good as most mirrors. So we knew that Enceladus was cold, covered with ice. And in its initial mission plan, Cassini was going to do three flybys of Enceladus. And the science team were expecting to see a frozen, dead little moon. But instead... What they saw as they passed by Enceladus caught them totally off guard. Here's a world only 300 miles across that we thought should be frozen solid, and yet we found this, these geysers, water vapor, water ice particles, shooting out of four cracks near the south pole of Enceladus, and that totally changed our thinking, and it refocused our mission because we wanted to know what was going on with Enceladus, and from that we learned there's a global ocean of liquid water underneath that icy crust. That ocean has salts. It's salty like our own ocean. 
there's organics in it. Uh, we found evidence for hydrothermal vents, and there's an excess of hydrogen coming out. It's incredible to think that there's a liquid water ocean on a moon of Saturn. It is so far away, it's so far from the sun. What is the source of energy that keeps these oceans warm on these moons? Well, it turns out both Enceladus and Titan, we think, have liquid water oceans underneath their icy crusts. In the case of Enceladus being so small, we think that maybe it's being driven by one of these resonances that creates waves in the rings could also give energy to Enceladus. Enceladus is in a resonance with another moon, Dione, that's further out, and that resonance you can think is pushing on Enceladus. It makes its orbit slightly eccentric or egg-shaped, and that allows Enceladus, as it goes further away and closer to Saturn, imagine squeezing a rubber ball, and as you squeeze it, you're gonna, the ball will get warmer and warmer, and we think that's one source of energy for Enceladus to maintain an ocean. We're not sure if it's quite enough energy, but it certainly is one source to keep the inside of Enceladus, the, the ocean around the rocky core, keep that liquid. One of the things you mentioned is there's an excess of hydrogen in the ocean. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean it's, it, it, are those good conditions for life or is, is it less good? I, I honestly don't know. Well, the excess hydrogen, you can think of it as being a food for microbes. And we measured the amount of excess hydrogen, and uh, a, very, a scientist came up with a very interesting analogy. If you turned the energy from the hydrogen into pizzas, you'd get the equivalent of 300 pizzas per hour coming out of Enceladus. And that's a lot of food for potential microbes to use in chemical reactions uh, in order to survive. So it's very intriguing. Uh, there's indications, you know, the salty water is helpful, uh, indications of other organics in, a, in the ocean as well. Enceladus is really cool because it's giving us free samples. And Cassini was able to fly through that plume of material, directly sample both the gas and the particles, and give us all kinds of information about the kind of habitat that the ocean might be. This is the thing that really blows my mind about Enceladus. What we were able to prove is that the ingredients for life are there. We know that there's a wonderful liquid saltwater ocean. We know that there's active geology. There are minerals dissolving in the water. We know that there are organic molecules in the water. But the thing that is so tragic in some ways is we don't have the ability to prove that there's life there right now. And there may be. There could be microbes under that ice. There could even be tiny little shrimp that are flying up, very surprised, through the vents. There could basically be roadkill on the Cassini spacecraft as it flies through those jets. But our mass spectrometer isn't sensitive enough. All we can do is take a basic measurement of the chemistry. We can't really look for the complex chemistry of existing life right now. As of May 2017, Cassini has four months to live. Well, we've gone into a very special set of orbits that we call the grand finale. The spacecraft has begun a death spiral sequence. It's flying increasingly risky patterns around Saturn, and it's going places that the engineering team would have cautioned against just a few months ago. And that grand finale is really like a brand new mission because we can do kinds of science that we couldn't do further away from Saturn. And what we were able to do is to use a flyby of Titan. Remember, Titan is Saturn's largest moon. Titan not only is scientifically interesting, 
but it allows us to change the shape and the orientation of the orbit just as though we had an additional giant rocket engine. And, when, and the very last Titan flyby we had actually allowed us to jump from outside the rings all the way across and to go down now through this gap between the innermost ring and the top of Saturn's atmosphere. So now Cassini scientists can explore places in Saturn's system that they've always wanted to go, but were afraid to visit because they didn't want to damage or destroy the spacecraft. We can, in a sense, reveal what Saturn is like from the inside out. Peel back that atmosphere and look and see what's the size of a possible rocky core. Is it one Earth, two Earths in size? How big is that rocky core? How deep do the winds go? Is it 300 miles, 3,000 miles? When do those winds start to die away? And then, of course, as we get closer and closer to Saturn's atmosphere, in our last five of these 22 grand finale orbits, we'll literally dip our toe into the atmosphere of Saturn, sampling the gas and returning direct information about what Saturn's atmosphere is like. And then, of course, imagine the pictures, those glorious pictures of the rings, of the planet itself. The, in fact, on the very last orbit, it's really a nudge from Titan. I call it Titan's goodbye kiss. That will give us the final push to lower uh, Cassini's orbit such that it will go into Saturn. At that point, Cassini will be vaporized and the mission will end. And we're in a set of orbits now where we don't have to do any more maneuvers or any more changes. We will just very naturally uh, go into Saturn on September 15th. And this is actually kind of a lovely thing about why we're destroying the Cassini spacecraft so deliberately. And that's because when we flew by Enceladus and we realized there were liquid water oceans, there is the possibility of life being under that ice. We knew that we had to protect it. Obviously, NASA cleans off spacecraft the best way they possibly know how. We try to make sure they're sterile with very few microbes on it. But some might be along for the ride anyway, and we couldn't risk contaminating a pristine world with our germs. So to make sure that will never happen, we're going to send Cassini streaming into the atmosphere of Saturn and completely burning up. No chance to contaminate or hurt any other life in the solar system. But one huge bonus is that we're getting to make some spectacular observations on the way down. And on that night of the very first dive, a lot of us stayed around till 2, 3 in the morning looking at those pictures as they came back. And one of the scientists, the atmospheric scientists, he looked at some of the pictures and he said, you know, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And that's the excitement of going so close to Saturn. Who knows what other new things will be there for us to find out. And there are so many things we still don't know about Saturn. We're diving in between the rings and the planet. And this will allow Cassini to get the mass of the rings for the very first time. Because outside you have the mass of Saturn plus the rings from our gravity flybys. Inside you have just the mass of Saturn. You can subtract the two and get the mass of the rings. Right now the mass of the rings is uncertain by about 100%. Just a quick explanation here. When someone says there's an error of 100%, it means that we don't know the answer to within a factor of two. So the mass of the rings of Saturn could be twice the mass we've estimated them to be, or half. And we hope after these gravity flybys to get that down to much less, only 5%. And knowing the mass that well, we can figure out if they're more massive than we think they are. They might be old, as old as Saturn itself, 
forming about the same time as Saturn, be able to survive the micrometeorite bombardment that erodes them away to be the rings that we see today. On the other hand, if they're a lot less massive than we think, then the rings must be young, maybe as young as only 100 million years, and that's short compared to the age of the solar system. Maybe a comet or a moon got too close to Saturn, Saturn's gravity tore it apart, and it became these beautiful rings around Saturn. In other words, Cassini's final observations are going to teach us things about Saturn that we never thought we'd be able to find out. We may learn whether there's a solid core deep inside the planet. We may finally figure out how the rings formed and why they're still there after thousands or millions of years. But this new knowledge, all due to this spectacular death of Cassini, doesn't mean that scientists are looking forward to that. This is a big deal. In many ways, people are preparing themselves almost for a death in the family. Think about what 25 years means to you and realize that a lot of these science team members have been working together for that long. People have grown up, had children, there have been marriages, there have been all of those life challenges they went through together. Cassini will dive dramatically into the clouds of Saturn. And with it, a lot of people's lives will change forever. I worked on Cassini and sort of worked and worried about Cassini at the times when something doesn't go quite right and then Cassini goes into something we call safe mode. It's Imagine Cassini kind of curling up, stopping everything she's doing, and calling for help, and waiting for us to, you know, communicate with her and fix whatever was wrong and get her back on track again. So, yes, it's going to be really hard to say goodbye to this really good friend. This mission to the stars has been commanded by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. We're supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. And as always, you can hear more of our shows at orbital.prx.org. I'm Dr. Michelle Fowler, a little bit of dead stardust signing off for now.